All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to We Are Here Lit. We have a special guest today. Professor Nathaniel Bryan is here with us. His current book, Towards a Black Boy Crit Pedagogy, Black Boys, Male Teachers, and Early Childhood Classroom Practices are going to be some of the main um, areas that we're going to talk about today, but we also want to learn a little bit about Professor Bryan. So how are you doing today, sir? I'm well. Thank you so very much for the work that you're doing, and especially thank you so much for having me to be a part of this much needed and important conversation about Black boys and literacy. Thank you. So what I normally do is take it way back to when you were uh, a child and, and growing up. So what I would like to ask you and start with, like, what were your reading habits as a child and, and growing up and things like that? Yeah, that's a very, very great question. I think it's always important to start with self because we theorize from the self uh, naturally. And I think when I think about my own early literacy experiences, I always have to think about my uh, pre-kindergarten teacher, Mr. Carter, who was, I would consider a mentor, right? Because he read books that interest me and my classmates. So I can remember him reading like, W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Brownie books. Uh, and this is what was in the early 80s uh, when I was in preschool. And also those traditional books that are not reflective of Black experiences, like Where the Wild Things Are, which I would say was one of my favorite books, which uh, dealt with the experiences of a, a, a boy whose mom sent him into his room uh, without dinner, and he went on this wild adventure. So that was one of my uh, fondest memory of early literacy experiences. And then we also had a lot of books in our homes too, right? Uh, growing up in a Christian home, we had a lot of books that were relating to Bible stories, right? So I always think about how the Black church was also instrumental in my early literacy development too, because, you know, not only that we, not only that we had, did we have those books in our homes, we also attended Sunday school and we read those stories, etc. So the home, the community, the school were all instrumental components of my early literacy experience. At one point uh, in my school uh, experience, perhaps when I was around in third or fourth grade, I started to disconnect from the reading process because of the kinds of books that I was forced to read, right? And at that time, I was considered what many would call today a struggling reader. I don't believe that people, people are struggling readers. I think they're disinterested and unmotivated because of the kinds of books that we are often forced to, to read. So uh, when I think about my early literacy experience, it ebbs and flows. I can remember opportunities of really loving books and then on the other hand, not loving books because of the kinds of books I was forced to, to read. And I shared so much of that uh, about my early childhood literacy experience in my book in the very uh, introduction chapter. Uh, yes. So you're you're from South Carolina, correct? Yes, I'm from South Carolina. So how uh, how do you think like your Southern culture plays a part of like uh, some of your literacy experiences? Because you had a teacher who were, who was reading from brownie books. I've never heard of that in my. That's impactful, right? Wow. 
Right. Well, he was a black male teacher. So I think his positionality, his social identities had a lot to do with why he read those books. And we know that South Carolina has a rich history of enslavement. And I think anybody who was born and raised in that area, you know, wants to honor that history, right? And wants to ensure that generations are aware of the of their blackness and that black history. So I think he found it a necessity to ensure that my classmates and I were very much aware of our history. Uh, unfortunately, so much of that is missing in our current schooling context uh, because, like I said earlier, we're forcing kids to read books that are disconnected from their personal and lived reality. So how can we return to those spaces where we are really ensuring that Black children in particular are reading books that reflect their everyday lived realities and their histories. Yes, yes. Now, can I ask you too about your library experiences? Did you have a school library or your, what was your school and public library experiences? Right, I remember vaguely the schooling library experiences. I remember library was always treated like a related art. So we were scheduled to attend library at least once a week. But there was also the public library in our community, which we use quite frequent, frequently. And I can recall even during summer months, uh, when, when we weren't in schools, I would always attend the, the public library with my, my cousins, you know, uh, looking at books and reading books. Uh, and of course, those books never reflected Black experiences, but those were the books that we had access to. But the, uh, all in all, the important part of this it, that we were reading and that was important. Yes. Yeah. So who would you consider your, your reading role model, the one that you can always pinpoint to? Would that be your, your kindergarten teacher or is there someone else who you would consider your reading role model? Yeah, it would be my kindergarten teacher, but it would also be my grandma. Because when I think about literacy, I don't own, I don't always think about books, right? I think about storytelling and all of those uh, components of literacy that we normally do not consider as literacy practices, right? So I can always remember my grandma, my grandma sharing her stories about growing up in the South and working in in, uh, in white people's homes as as a housekeeper, right? So all of those experiences shape who I am today. So I would consider my kindergarten teacher and my grandma as uh, role models. That's awesome. Is, um, so how did you get interested or thinking about um, the route of education? How did you end up there in, in terms of schooling? Yeah, another great question. I've always wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I can even recall growing up having the desire to become a teacher, but what deterred me early on was the fact that teachers did not make enough money. And I would always hear my teachers say this. So it really deterred me from considering teaching as a professional option. And so when I first attended undergrad, I, I was pursuing uh, uh, pre-law, to be honest. And so I decided against it in the end and then you know, uh, returned to my first love of wanting to become a teacher. And that's how I, I uh, entered into the teaching profession, but teaching was always a part of who I am, and I think I will ever be, you know, it's just, you know, I think we are called to become teachers. So um, I feel the same way. So 
when you first got into the field, what were some of those kind of like pump the brake moments where you were like, wow, this is the reality of teaching? What were some of those concerns for you? Right. I even going through my uh, pre-service teacher education program, I never realized the inequities that schools, uh, that black children face in their schooling experience, right? Uh, the resources, the lacking resources, uh, teachers who were not culturally responsive to the academic and social needs of children. And in my early years of teaching, all of that just slapped me in my face. And I felt compelled to do something about it, to change the dynamics of schooling for black children. And although at that moment, I didn't feel prepared because I didn't have the language to explain what I was witnessing. So uh, lacking the language and the knowledge encouraged me to return to school to develop the knowledge and expertise to be able to combat some of the institutional and structural inequities that black children were facing in school. So it my my pursuit of the PhD, my master's all came out of this desire to want to change the dynamics of schooling for Black children. If I could ask you, what does the culture of reading look like for the Black community? Like, what is that for us? What are our patterns? What are some of the things that are, you know, like the pros and cons of the culture of reading for us, you know, for however you want to shape it? Right. I think we really have to expand our view and our definition of what we're considering literacy and language, right? I think there's so many powerful literacy practices that are happening in our homes and our communities that are never validated in our schooling uh, system, right? Uh, going back to what I mentioned earlier about my grandma sharing those stories, right? That's a literacy practice, right? And yeah. so we have to begin to ask ourselves these deep and deep and critical questions about how does the science of reading include those home uh, and community literacy practices if they do. And we know that when we think about the science of reading, it, it does not include those home and literacy practices that are readily available in the homes and communities of Black children, right? And so we should not see our children as struggling readers, we should see schools as institutions that are not prepared to value and acknowledge the literacy practices that Black children bring to school, right? Teachers are not prepared to, to, to uh, embrace those literacy practices to help children develop into uh, lifelong readers. Mm -hmm. Wholeheartedly. One of the things that I, I, I was looking at when I was doing research was even when we begin school in that preschool age, they have these learning related skills, self-regulation and all these type of things. And I'm like, that doesn't even sound like us. You right. know what I mean? Exactly. All of those, all of that, that current, that the current structure, what we know as a science of reading, these expectations are all informed by white cultural ways of knowing and being. And so because they are informed by white cultural ways of knowing and being, Black children are marginalized. 
ways, right? They, they are pushed aside as not being able to uh, develop the, or not having those skills or not being able to develop those skills. But we know that our children are well prepared, right? And so we really have to push back against these deficit constructions of Black children as readers and knowing and understanding that they come from very literacy rich homes and communities that schools do not value. When you were an administrator, how did you, as a practitioner, how were, how were you dealing with these notions? Did you, was it not till later when you were into your research that you understood what to do or what were some of more of your practices of trying to deal with some of those like hurdles in terms of the disconnect of, of how we learn? Right. Well, most of my emphasis at that time, particularly when I was an administrator, was ensuring that teachers were prepared to acknowledge and value those literacy practices. So I spent a lot of time providing uh, professional development sessions for teachers to think about how they can create culturally relevant, responsive and sustaining classrooms to be able to support the academic and social outcomes of children. If teachers aren't prepared to engage in those practices, we don't expect to see uh, the need needs of Black children met in schools. So it really starts with teacher preparation and then moving forward. Well, I want to talk a lot about uh, what your research emphasis is, which is on play. Can you talk about just the basic kind of theories about how Im important play is to inquiry and intellectualism? Like, how does that all work? I think play is foundational to imagination, creativity, intellectualism. And we know based on the literature that children who engage in play are able to develop those academic and social skills, right? They are able to increase their reading and their math outcomes. And sadly, early child education in particular are, is moving away from allowing children to have the play time that will allow them to develop those skills. But play is not always an innocent uh, construction, right? I mean, I think, and I say that because white children are able to freely play in their homes, in their communities, etc. But for Black children, play is always under attack. And the reason I say this, I always think about uh, Tamir Rice, uh, a young boy who was simply playing in, an, in a public playground with a toy gun and who was uh, shot down by cops in, in minutes of their arrival, right? And so play for Black children and Black boys in particular is not always seen as play, right? So these deficit narratives and misnom misnomers that are attached to Black boys' bodies are also attached to the ways in which they play, right? So teachers and police officers are people who engage with children, do not necessarily see Black boys as simply playing. They're seeing them as doing something out of the norm, they're, you know? So again, their play is labor, labeled as dangerous, right? It, it is labeled as bad, et cetera. So Black boys are not afforded the rights and opportunities uh, much like their white counterparts when we think about play. And what's interesting that you say about that, because I, I was interviewing um, Dr. Guy Sims, who created Brother Man comics and all this stuff like that, and their environment, uh, their um, 
parents, one was a college professor and one was a teacher. And just their understanding of the ability of play and creativity, they were doing things. I was like, that's like unheard of. Creating movies, they were kids making, and you think they were the ones who were the first comic creators for Black, you know, like, you know, for Black folks. So for people to understand the potential with our creativity, the impact of play. Absolutely. Is is so important. I was reading um, The Dark Fantastic also, and just, it never even occurred to me because of that deficit within my growing up of the ability to think in terms of science fiction and fantasy and all this stuff, how it's limited to us because we've never really seen it. Absolutely. And and how that plays a part of our learning. It it was just that part of it. And to think about how that stunts creativity is, is absolutely blows my mind, blows my mind. So um, can you explain, um, Oh, here's the idea that I had, too, was that, like, we have this idea of play and learning and how important that is. So that takes care of this one aspect of it. And then I see, like, professors like Dr. Tatum, who is um, who talks about writing and and things of that nature. And I see these these incredible researchers in these different spaces doing things. Now, knowing that you know, like that, that whole construct of, of academics is a certain thing. Do we need to rethink that in terms of how we practice within our community? Because we're taking still that research construct and applying it here, but like, how do we reach our communities with this research? That's, that's a really great question. I always think that we've struggled with making theory and practice connections, right? I think we theorize uh, in the academy so much and all of the theories and uh, concepts that we construct rarely find themselves in schools, right? I'm Teachers are just now hearing about culturally relevant practices when Gloria Latson-Billings has introduced culturally relevant uh, pedagogy like uh, decades ago, right? And so there's this slow infusion or integration of theories into schooling practices. And I do think that we as professors need to be on the ground in schools more, ensuring that the theories that we can, and, and concepts that we theorize and conceptualize are readily available to teachers. And I think that's one way that we can close the theory and practice divide, which is which is glaring in most cases, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just being in schools, working alongside teachers, learning with teachers can really help us close that, that huge gulf between theory and practice, I believe. Oh, I, to... I wanted to step back and talk about sports and play mm-hmm. and, and, and literacy practices and things of that nature, because it seems that there's this push and pull within our community regarding sports, because we know it's an avenue out, but yet mm-hmm. it's an over kind of dependent upon idea, right? So what is your, what are your feelings about sports and play and academics and literacy and and those type of, you know, like notions? I think, to be honest, I I understand that uh, sometimes we emphasize and in most cases overemphasize sports in terms of play. 
But most black boys are, they love sports, right? Even in my book, the book that it was just released, I found that the black boys who I interviewed, they were so engrossed in the sports world, right? And so the teacher with whom they were working understood that that was a part of their identity. So he used that, that capital to be able to connect it to literacy, to get them interested in reading text, right? And so I do hold space for us to, to acknowledge and value and use that as a tool to interest Black boys in, in, in reading and literacy in general. But there are also Black boys who do not like sports, right? And so we should hold space for those boys too. Uh, their play may look significantly different than the play experiences of Black boys who enjoy spo sports, but we should not see their play as less masculine or more effeminate, etc. We should value different types of play experiences. I know there, there was a discussion on Facebook about uh, uh, about black boys in kitchens, playing in kitchens yes. and cooking. And should we allow black boys to play in kitchens? Yes, we should, right? Mm -hmm. Think about the many cooks who are making millions of dollars, right? You know, okay. cooking. Right, so we should hold a space for Black boys to engage in that kind of play and value that kind of play just as much as we value sports and other hegemonic masculine constructions of play. Yes, I want to see a Black male cookware line in Target. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like that. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly, exactly right. But I do think as the as Black people, we have to really challenge ourselves to think beyond these hegemonic masculine perspectives of what we think about in terms of play, right? When I say hegemonic masculinity, I think these are there's these there are these dominant conceptions of what it means to be a man and a boy in our society. And we really need to push back against those constructions in order to allow space for black boys who don't enjoy those hegemonic masculine masculine constructions of play to engage in play experiences that they that they enjoy. So how do we even begin or like, what are some different ways in terms of literacy and reading practices? We, I mean, everybody's talking about yet culturally, you know, relevant and, and things like that, but what does that mean for us? I mean, like people, you know, like it's like a term and we know like, and I see librarians, especially if I buy these black books off a list that should do it. No, that's not always the way we should go at it. I think that we have become so accustomed to what I call black facing children's book, right? But it's just simply that, it's just a black face, but the, the characters are still embodying white ways of knowing and being. Mm. So we should push back against those black facing children's book that simply uh, whitewash black, black ways of knowing and being. We need black authors to write black children's book about black children's experiences in a positive light, right? Because even when we think about most of the books that portray black children or black characters, oftentimes those books are also deficit, right? They're promoting these 
stereotypes about Black uh, children in general. So we have to push back against that, right? There's so much beauty in Black culture and Black language, and people need to come to love that beauty, right? And that beauty can be displayed through children's books and, 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 and literature. And we need to ensure that we are providing and holding space for Black authors to capture the beauty of Blackness. What are some of the things that you've seen in your experiences, like as a teacher and an administrator that have worked in terms of getting Black boys beyond the books are for nerds, books are, you know, like this type of thing. What are some of the things that you've seen that worked? Well, I think it goes back to something I said earlier in my own, uh, drawing on my own experience. I think when we provide Black children access to books that interest them, I think it really pushes back against this uh, this unmotivated reader or, or, or seeing reading as solely constructed for nerds, right? I think oftentimes in our classrooms, we don't provide Black children access to books that interest them. And we have to start there because reading... Uh, it it's, should be filtered through our personal interests mm-hmm. and personal and collective interests. Yeah. Um, I, um, what was I going to talk? I wanted to talk to you also about, um, I'm just having a, a mental moment here. Sorry. Uh, so we talked about the science of reading and that's a whole new term that's just like invading every yes. aspect of of literacy when these and I hate to call them trends because the science is not you know what I mean? but right. how how do we get the science of reading right it goes through teachers to our communities for example so how do we get the science of reading to home practices do you know what I mean like what does that take or how what do you think about those notions of making the science of literacy more practical how do we do those things i when we think about the science of reading we have to first think about those who are cultivating that science right and so these are mainly white scholars who are saying well these are the aspects that children need uh to be successful in reading Right. And so we really have to challenge and contest and push back against those who are conducting this research and calling it the science of reading, right? So we really need to ensure that there are more Black scholars at the table who are able to bring in those home and community uh, practices and label those home and community practices as the science of reading, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, too, when we think about the science of reading, those researchers only rely on quantitative data to come up with the science of reading, right? And quantitative data is fine, but there's also qualitative data that can also help us better understand, uh, you know, the cultural and linguistic practices of Black and Brown communities. And that too can be included into the science of reading, right? And so it's twofold. It's those we have at the table creating this science and, and, and the type of data that we're relying on to produce the science, right? So the science needs to be a little bit more diverse. Okay. So that's interesting. So when 
you know, teachers were on these Facebook pages and we're on these, these reading groups that are talking about the science of reading. Where should we be in this, especially as black teachers? Because you know what's going to happen? The district just, okay, we're doing science of reading now. And we just get thrown into these, you know, PDs and all this kind of stuff. So how should we be as practitioners looking at this? Right. I, we really should be looking at it with a very careful eye, right? Because if we don't, we're perpetuating white supremacy, right? And we're dehumanizing our children by enforcing upon them these white cultural ways of knowing and being that is reflected via the science of reading, right? I think most teachers uh, are unaware of the damage that they are causing when they rely on these white-centric science of reading approaches. And so I, again, I think we really need to ensure that we're turning towards scholars of color who are helping us to understand that, hey, this notion of science of reading is really perpetuating white supremacy and racism, and we need to interrupt that by centering, foregrounding uh, black and brown cultural ways of knowing knowing and being in the science of reading. Really, so really honing in on the works of Alfred Tatum, uh, Lamar Johnson, myself, you know, Yolanda Cini Ruiz, all of these people who are producing this scholarship to challenge the notion of the science of reading. So for us that are outside of that space, can you explain to us what your hurdles are in terms of getting to the table and getting heard or what are, what's the black struggle in scholarship? that we, we are having these issues? Because some people are like, I don't understand you right there with, you know, like. Yes. Well, it's all about publishing outlet, right? I think because we want to foreground and center Black cultural ways of knowing and being to challenge the science of research, it often doesn't occur because there's so much gatekeeping in terms of what research and scholarship is published, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not publishing quantitative data, you know, you're seen as not being a scientist, right? Your work isn't uh, credible. It's not valid, right? You know, so again, it's, it's, you know, really navigating this, the gatekeeping of the publishing world, right? And so that is one way that our hands are tied as scholars of color who really want to challenge the, sci- the notions of the science of reading and to center uh, Black cultural ways of knowing and being in the science of reading. Yeah, so it's a publishing outlet. Uh, it's, it's interesting, too, because as, us as practitioners, sometimes we don't even understand what y'all struggle is to even get seen and heard, you know, to get things to be considered as practice, you know, from theory to practice. So that's that's interesting for us to know. And so most school districts are far more willing to pay monies to uh, learn more about Fontes and Pinnell, which is grounded in the science of reading than, you know, scholars who produce research that we know works to uh, to support reading outcomes for Black children. Mm. What are your thoughts on on Black homeschooling? Because I'm seeing a lot of like... uh, Uh, I'm seeing this trend towards Black homeschooling, and I'm looking at some of the social media. I'm like, wow, there's some really interesting and incredible stuff going on. What what are your thoughts? I love it. 
I love it. I think that is one of the best ways to blackify the schooling process for our children, right? Because schools are so dehumanizing. We know that. We see, we've seen the data to support uh, the dehumanization of Black children via the traditional schooling setting. So when Black people can afford to pull their children out of these public schooling spaces to homeschool their children, I'm all for it. Because we need children who are not only educated about white cultural ways of knowing and being, we need children who understand who they are through the teaching and learning and schooling process. And one of the best ways to do it is through homeschooling. What I like too, and, and to kind of connect things in a roundabout way, when when Professor um, Goldie Mohammed was talking about you know, like cultivating genius in communities and our historical practices mm-hmm. of like you know, like being in there to each one, teach one. What needs to happen now? When we look at us as a community, we have researchers over here, teachers over here, policy folks over here, community activists over here. What, what, what do we need to do, you know? Another great question. I think that the academy is structured in a way to divide all of us so that we we can't come together to uh, to create or curate environments or structures that we know work for our children. So much like you just said, uh, we are all siloed, you know, and so we're not all having these conversations at the policy level, at the practice level, to be able to curate spaces and practices that we know uh, that work to support our children. So some way, somehow, we have to really push back against the ivory tower right? And do what's best for our children, finding uh, or space and, uh, and, and through which we can create a structure to support our, 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 our children academically and socially. You know, I, I'm tired of doing things the way that we've been doing it. You know, we've been doing it this way so long. We really have to envision and re-envision a new way, a new way forward to better support our children. wholeheartedly like I'm seeing these things like with pods and all this stuff and I'm like we have a history of this you know like we have these forums with killer Mike and all these stuff talking about financial and how to make money but when it comes to literacy like the most important thing that can lead to financial success and all these other political radio silence right exactly yeah so we just have to push back against the barriers that we see before us, right? Mm -hmm. And and don't be afraid to create something new, right? And I think that we just become so accustomed to thinking that traditional schooling is what we need, you know? And I think it comes from the fact that, you know, it comes from, you know, the civil rights movement era where, you know, we wanted better resources. We wanted our, our Black students to to be integrated into these schools, but I think that's where the damage came in. I think we were doing so much better during segregated schooling. We produced successful Black children when we didn't have the resources, because when we didn't have the resources, we created the resources. We were able to use that creativity and ingenuity uh, that we have naturally as Black people. So I, I just think that we need to go back to 
these spaces where Black people just had an opportunity to, to love on each other, to, to support each other, to, to create schools that, that were grounded in Black love and culture and ingenuity. I, I long for that. Same I long here. to return to that. Same here. Because like I said, I'm seeing, especially like with between the homeschooling thing and just like um, grassroots community literacy work, I'm seeing like so much incredible things happening that nobody hears about because it's happening over here in this small, you know, space or this space right. over here. It's like, how do we create better networks of, like you said, knowing and, and being so that we can, you know, some, some people can uh, transfer these concepts to their spaces. And, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to get away from uh, traditional schooling. I think that's where the harm is done. And, you know, in order to really embrace, you know, Black joy, Black genius, uh, cultivating Black joy, Black genius, we have to do it outside of the traditional schooling spaces. One last question is to, you know, with the um, legislation about um, preschooling and the idea of what is it free, free or more accessible mandatory preschooling, what are your thoughts about that? And what does the Black community within all our little siloed spaces need to be thinking about if this is something that's going to happen to like make it meaningful? Right. That's another great question. I think when we are thinking about those policies that are coming down the pipeline, they're all structured around this universal approach to to early child education. And, and, And the universal approach to early child education really decenters culturally relevant, responsive, and sustaining practices, right? Mm-hmm. And so we really have to push back against those universal policies. But I do think it is a prime opportunity for us to develop and create our own approaches to schooling. So I think we need to look at opportunities to create and hold space for what we know that works for Black children and not buy into this universal approach to, to early child education, because it, again, will uh, elevate uh, and promulgate white cultural ways of knowing and being, and we will still find our students, our Black students, losing out. We're going to still find them uh, at the bottom of the well, like Dr. Derrick Bell talks about. So we really need to, to take an opportunity to look at how we can ensure that we push back against uni- the universal approach to really center Black cultural ways of knowing and being through these policies. Okay, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And just on a personal note, like outside of that, what is your wish for Black boys? Like if you could talk to them in terms of what you would like to see them you know, take on in terms of literacy? What, what would that be? First, I would say that it's okay to be who you are, right? And find books that mirror that experience, right? Black boys are often told that they cannot be, become, and I think that stymies their growth academically in all content areas. Loving on your blackness and maleness is so important. And then connect that, that love of blackness and maleness to, to, to reading texts and books that really up, uplifts and, and values uh, both blackness and maleness. 
That was awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. I want to end on that note. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you wholeheartedly. And I just wanted to say, um, uh, if you're interested in Professor um, Brian's work, it's available like universally, like look at Google Scholar and then go to your local library and ask if you're not within academics to understand if you have early childhood um, ideas of understanding play and things of that nature. His work is just incredible. So thank you so much for doing yeah. the work. If you have an opportunity. I'm not sure yes. we can see this is the new book and it talks about everything from play to literacy practices that foregrounds the experiences of Black boys. So yeah, please, you can find the book on Amazon towards a Black boy pedagogy. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for, for your time. Thank you. I appreciate you so much. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.